Teaching meditation can be a deeply rewarding experience. Help others improve their mental and emotional well-being, reduce stress, improve focus, increase self-awareness and self-regulation, all while deepening your own practice and understanding. Join acclaimed author, Buddhist teacher, and Emmy Award-winning musician David Nickturn on Tuesday, May 28th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time for a free online discussion on teaching meditation in Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash be here now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ram Dass's Love Server Member Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ram Dass, Krishna Das, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more, the Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with Audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom. I want to talk tonight about some of the other Brahma Viharas, some of the other qualities that are grouped together with Metta, 
and the ways that they enrich each other and support each other. Those other qualities are compassion, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. When we see the the workings of all four of these together, how they come together, then we find that place of fulfillment or fullness in the practice. Because what the balance of these four qualities together gives us is an understanding of the interplay of various different qualities like equanimity and deep, passionate caring. The interplay of qualities like compassion and justice. The interplay of love and wisdom. Brought together, these four bring us to those points of quite exquisite balance. I want to start with equanimity, even though it's the last in the series, because in many ways, equanimity is the quality of wisdom. It's the force behind justice, behind understanding, behind seeing things as they are. And so it's an essential element in understanding how any of those other qualities can become boundless, can reach everywhere to everyone. Equanimity is, as many of these qualities are, often confused with its near enemy. The near enemy of equanimity is said to be indifference. It's when we withdraw, when we simply do not care, when we construct a barrier between ourselves and somebody else, or ourselves in some situation, all of which indifference, withdrawal, removal, separation, are actually considered to be very subtle forms of anger or aversion. Equanimity is not indifference. Equanimity can be defined in the particular sense in which it's used in these teachings as a spacious stillness of mind, as a radiant calm that, in fact, gives us the strength to look at everything, to be completely present, to face suffering with a lot of courage and determination without becoming grief-stricken, without being heartbroken. It's equanimity that allows us to continue to offer metta, to offer loving-kindness, when it may not be received so graciously. It's equanimity that allows us, even enables us, to have some sympathetic joy for anybody at all, and certainly for anybody beyond our dearest, closest friend. Equanimity is spacious stillness of mind. It's another way of understanding the immensity of things, a very big, open view of things. This last summer, 
for the first time in my life, I went to the opera. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and some friends, hearing that I had never been to the opera, decided that I should go. Now, Santa Fe, those of you who've been there know, is endowed with the tremendous beauty of vast open sky. In many places, it feels as though you are just seeing an infinity of open space when you look at the sky. And it's very beautiful. The Santa Fe Opera House happens to be an open-air opera house. And my friends happened to get us tickets so that from where I was sitting, I could see both the stage and the vast, spacious, open sky behind it. It was really wonderful sitting there, because there on the stage were a number of people behaving hysterically, <laughs> or one could say operatically. And then just behind them was this immensity of open, free, unimpeded, spacious sky. It reminded me of life, actually, and the quality of equanimity. It's not that from the stance of equanimity nothing happens, that our experience flattens out, we don't feel the pleasure and pain of life. It means that it's held in a certain context of awareness, of freedom, of balance. Thai monk Ajahn Chah, in a very famous quotation, talked about meditation. He said something like, as you practice meditation, your mind will be quieter and quieter, like a still forest pool. Many wonderful and rare animals will come to drink at the pool, but you will be still. He went on to say, this is the happiness of the Buddha. I really appreciated that, that image because of all the wonderful and rare animals that continue to come to drink at the pool. Everything happens, just like before. But you will be still. That's the power of equanimity. It's said in the teachings that life is a succession of experiences of pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. is isn't just somebody's life, it's life. It's the fabric of life, it's the nature of life. To move constantly between these different kinds of experiences, there's pleasure and pain, and gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute, completely outside of our control. Who is there amongst us who has been able successfully to will away all pain, all loss, all blame, all disrepute? It doesn't seem to work that way, according to our effort to absolutely control this flow of events. Life is as it is, like the seasons that change. We may not like it very much when autumn becomes winter, 
but somehow we trust it. We don't feel betrayed by that change. We don't feel it's a personal humiliation, like, I should have been able to stop that. But we do feel that personal humiliation around many other things we can no more control, like growing older, like dying, being unhappy, experiencing pain. Yet life is as it is. Equanimity is being able to be with these changing experiences fully, experiencing them fully for what they are, without being deluded, without getting lost in attachment, which is very limiting to the pleasure, feeling, oh, only now am I alive, only now should I be present, and I must hold on to this forever. Equanimity allows us to experience the pain with openness, with clarity, without being deluded, seeing its possibilities, rather than being lost in resistance and fear. Equanimity opens us to it all, so it's a very great strength. We all know, just from life, this constant succession of changing events. Often we talk about praise and blame because it's such an interesting avenue to observe. We know that we might perform an action or do something out of the best possible motive that we can, we can engender, we can be aware of. And we might perform that action with very great skill, which is also called for. When we say that it's very important to understand your motivation, it also means that we need to be sensitive to context, to a clear comprehension of the different elements involved in a situation. So, for example, out of a very pure, compassionate, clear motive, you might decide you have something rather disagreeable to say to somebody. You also need to be sensitive. Perhaps it's not so wise to shout it out in the middle of a crowded room. Maybe you need to take them aside, tell them privately, things like that. But having done that, acted from the best motive that you can, with the greatest skillfulness that you can, what ensues after that, in terms of praise and blame, is completely outside of our control because of the immensity of conditions that are coming together in that moment. What if that person hasn't slept all night? What if they just had terrible news on the phone? What if they just won the lottery? <laughs> There's so many things happening in that moment that we learn to trust and honor our own motivation, care about our skill, and let go. Example I use sometimes, because it's very funny how the very same action can bring forth so much praise and so much blame. Joseph mentioned the other night about the custom of coming into the hall and bowing or paying respects to the Buddha image. Well, I remember when 
the first teacher here decided to do that. It was a little different. They came in, turned around, bowed to the Buddha, sat down, led the sitting, rang the bell, and by the time they got to the bulletin board, there were notes on there for them. It's not so far away. <laughs> Some, the first note he pulled off the board said something like, I saw you bowing to the Buddha, and I wanted to tell you how deeply moved I was by that. It allowed me a space of expressing my own devotion and, and touching those parts of myself, and I'm really grateful that you did that. The second note that he pulled off the board said, I saw you bowing to the Buddha, and I was really horrified. I have to say that, you know, that kind of ritual has no place in this, in this country, and here you are imposing it upon us, and I really resent it, and there it was. Same action, same motivation, same level of skill. A minute and a half later, there's praise and blame. It's completely outside of our control, and naturally, we like praise, we don't like blame very much. The question is really, do we become shattered by the blame? Can we hold it all in some way, understanding that it's completely changing outside of our control? I can remember when there was a, a review of my book in, in a magazine, and it was generally an extremely positive review. But there was one line in it that was troubling to me. The line said something like, um, the exercises in the book enliven the otherwise more lackluster general treatise. <laughs> so out of, I don't know, 800 words, 900 words of a review, I saw one word. <laughs> that was lackluster. <laughs> it became known as the L word around here. <laughs> and it was interesting because it was hard to say from the sentence if the more lackluster general treatise was the entire body of the Buddha's teaching or the rest of my book outside of the exercises. And of course, I had a certain preference that it be the entire body of the Buddha's teaching <laughs> that this person was criticizing rather than my book. <laughs> and this word burned a hole in my brain <laughs> for some time, even though the rest of the review was rather positive. And then recently, uh, Bob Dole gave a speech. <laughs> And a friend called me up and said, well, I guess you and Bob Dole have something in common. <laughs> so I said, what was that? And he said, well, you understand that people have been saying that his speech was rather lackluster. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, you know, talk about identification. <laughs> but within that all, there needs to be some appreciation of things being outside of our control. The constant coming and going of events. It doesn't mean we become indifferent and that we cut off. 
and that we secretly hate what's going on while we're trying to pretend some calm, it means that we have that immutable strength which can bear anything because we know it's all going to happen anyway, like the seasons. And we can be full, we can be present, we can be alive with all of these different changing experiences. There's pleasure and pain and gain and loss, praise and blame, fame and disrepute. What happens when we offer, with all the loving kindness in our hearts, we offer something to somebody and they don't want it? Or they take it and they don't say thank you. What happens when we are in a position of helping or serving, trying to ease somebody's suffering, and they don't get better, according to our lights. There are many things in this world that are outside of our control, and realizing that shouldn't diminish our efforts. It's what empowers our efforts, makes them more boundless, more yielding, more forgiving, and more energized in the face of circumstances. We do what we can do with the best motivation and the greatest skill, and then we let go. It's about bigness of view, of perception. I remember that very early in my meditation career, I was suffering really a lot in my practice, a tremendous amount of my practice. And I marched up to the front of the room, looked my first meditation teacher in the eye, and I said, isn't there an easier way? <laughs> it's quite funny because now, looking back, of course, it almost seemed that I thought that if I could only catch him off guard, you know, I would force him to admit that yes, it was a far easier way than what he was teaching, but he liked to see people suffer. So, you know, he was trying to present it in the most difficult way he could imagine, even though he knew there was an easier way. So I marched up and looked him in the eye and asked him this question in, I think, quite a challenging way. Isn't there an easier way? And he looked at me. I think he laughed. I don't think he even said anything. But what I remember most about that encounter was the look in his eyes. There was a feeling looking in his eyes of timelessness. It was like the arena in which he was viewing my practice from was infinite. It was timeless. It was outside our notions of immediate gratification. So that from that perspective, truly not imposed and not made up, but truly from the perspective of many, many, many lifetimes. The fact that I'd had a really bad afternoon that afternoon, it meant nothing. It was such a sense of vast perspective. It's like that sky in Santa Fe with the opera going on in the middle of it. Many times, this is what equanimity provides us. It's that shift in perspective outside of time 
so that we can accept the changing nature of things. Not to give in and not to succumb, but to be free, even as things change. I read a story once about Trungpa Rinpoche, late Tibetan Lama, who, with a group of his students, took a large white sheet of paper and in the middle of it drew a kind of floppy V-shape, then said to his students, what is this a picture of? Apparently, they all replied by saying, oh, that's a picture of a bird. And he said, no, it's not. It's a picture of the sky with a bird flying through it. That's the moment of equanimity. It's moving beyond the limited experience of the moment to see it in that vast perspective. Then we're free, and then we can be at peace knowing, inevitably, there's pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and fame and disrepute. We take that understanding of equanimity, which is wisdom, into the realm of opening to suffering, which is the source of compassion. It's a strange thing in our culture because suffering is so disguised, it's so distorted, it's so disliked, it's so unacceptable, that it actually takes quite a good deal of courage to turn that around, to look at that whole side of our experience and the experience of others, not to try to pretend it's not there, not to repackage it into something more palatable, but to see it actually for what it is. Just before my uh, book came out, when I was in Santa Fe teaching, somebody from there interviewed me in anticipation of my book coming out in order to, to publish something about it. And she asked me, she started out by asking me all these different questions. She said, do you believe in this? And I said, no. And then she said, well, do you believe in that? And I said, no. <laughs> Do you believe in this? No. And finally, in some frustration, she said to me, what do you believe in? Much to my surprise, I heard the words coming out of my mouth, I believe in suffering. <laughs> I don't know who was more shocked, she or I. But, but it's true. I do believe in suffering, which is the gift of the Dharma. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering, because certainly everybody suffers. Not everybody is ennobled by it. Most people are made very bitter by it, very angry. But everybody suffers. And if we can learn to open to that experience in truth, then we can develop the heart of compassion. Compassion is that state. It's the trembling or the quivering of the heart in response to pain, in response to suffering. Not to make an enemy of our own suffering. I have a friend who was very ill last year, and his 
statement about his intention was, I'm not going to make an enemy of my own death, which was very inspiring and beautiful. Because we can make an enemy of a great range of our, our pain, our discomfort, our loss. And so are alienated from the very heart of, of our own experience. If we can open to the experience just as it is, then we develop a quality of faith in ourselves and in our perception that allows us to cut through the enchantment and the deceptions of the society around us. It's like children, you know, any child in a dysfunctional family situation where there's pain and there's anger and there's discord and there's conflict, all of which is seemingly hidden from the child, at least not talked about, so that the child won't know. But the child always knows. We always know on some level. But what happens, of course, is that our inner experience is not in any way affirmed by the outside world. And so we learn not to trust ourselves. We learn to split. We learn to cut off. The process of opening to suffering is like becoming whole again. The word in Pali is dukkha. It means not just grave and intense suffering. It means dis-ease, it means the restless nature of things, always changing. It means insecurity. And it's pervasive. It's a thread throughout our life experience, is dukkha. It's not that it's always bad. Sometimes there's great pleasure as much as there is great pain. But the very fact that that constantly changes outside of our control is dukkha. I can remember when I was practicing with Saira Upandita, who's our Burmese teacher, many times I would go in to see him for an interview. I would describe an experience in my practice that was very painful either physically painful or emotionally painful or states of loneliness or inability to control what was going on in my mind or my body. Things were just happening and I didn't like them. I mean, a whole great range of uncomfortable, painful experiences. And I would look at him, describe my experience. He would look at me and he would say, well, this is dukkha. Then I would look at him, waiting for him to tell me what to do to make it go away. Like, sit more, or walk more, or, you know, do this or do that, and then the suffering will completely go away. So I would just look at him, and he would repeat himself, well, this is dukkha. <laughs> and I would look at him, and, you know, he would just keep saying, well, this is dukkha. It's not a bad thing to experience in a spiritual sense. It's the opening to that the truthful recognition of that, that allows us to have compassion for ourselves and for others. Rather than seeing what we do as bad, what we're experiencing as bad and wrong and awful, we experience it as suffering. So it's not 
in the light of rejecting ourselves or hating ourselves. It's that great tenderness, the quivering of the heart, which is compassion. And as we experience that ourselves, we can offer that to other people. Empathy or compassion is the natural root of morality. When we see our anger sitting here in this nice place, wishing love and happiness for all beings, and we're filled with anger, that's a very painful state. When we feel the pain of it directly, and we sense the pain of it without pretending, without trying to distort it into something else, then we know that when other people are filled with anger, they are suffering, just as we suffer when we feel anger. Again, we sense our oneness, our non-separateness. I was reading recently that psychological research shows that very often people can be seething with physiological reactions even though they're oblivious to their emotional state. So they might not be aware of anger or anxiety even though their hearts are racing and their blood pressure is soaring and they're sweating. It says that, this research said that about one person in six shows this pattern. They're just completely cut off. And this also is related to an inability to empathize, to register somebody else's feelings, to attune emotionally. And empathy, sensing what someone else is feeling, is the root of caring. It's said in this piece of research that the standard used in communications research is that 90% or more of an emotion, emotional message is nonverbal. It comes through in gesture or tone of voice or facial expression or in a telling silence. And if we can't tune in, we miss it. We don't know what's going on. To be able to be open to all of our own experiences, including the painful ones, allows us to open to others, to feel it, to empathize, to care what other people are experiencing. This again is from the Thai teacher Ajahn Chah, who said, when we have no real home, we are like aimless travelers out on the road, going this way for a while, then that way. Until we return to our real home, we feel ill at ease, whatever we are doing. If you think about the Brahma Viharas, the word means the best home. If we can find a home in our own caring, our own compassion, then we feel at home wherever we are, whatever we're doing. It's a motivational shift to the realm of compassion. Rather than seeing people as adversaries, as opponents, wanting to defeat them, we want to help them because somehow their freedom, their liberation from suffering is connected to our own. 
It's not so apart and it's not so different. Rather than seeing the world in the light of us and them or self and other, it's like we're all collaborating to bring forth a state of freedom, of liberation. Somehow we're all in this together, like it or not. It's like if somebody came right now, some extraterrestrial, and sealed off this room so that we were given this message through this microphone suddenly saying, this room is now sealed off till the end of time. You people are here together forever. We're going to slip in some food somehow now and then, but this is it. You're in this together. Hopefully, we would all take care of each other because it's a long, long, long time that we're going to be here together. And if somebody's frightened and upset, we try to calm them down because we're all affected by that and we can feel the pain of that. If somebody's hungry, we will feed them. We'll take care of them because we're all here together and it's not going to change. The motivational field, the mind state of compassion, is this togetherness. We feel what others feel. We care about them. We understand that we are all connected. We're interconnected. And so we have to take care of each other. Thich Nhat Hanh said a wonderful thing about compassion. He said, compassion is a verb. Compassion isn't just a, a sentimentalizing, a nice spiritual feeling. It's a verb. It's an action of the heart. What's confusing sometimes is that our compassionate action is not effective in the conventional realm because it doesn't always ease all suffering. It doesn't always take care of everything. But what it expresses absolutely is our alliance. It's the fact that whoever is suffering is not alone, is not forgotten, is not overlooked. And so it's very active. I often think of my very favorite Dalai Lama story, which happened here in 1979, when we did something that we have often done in the past and probably continue to do in the future, which is that we invited an extremely eminent, wonderful, renowned being, thinking, they'll never come, and then they come. So this is what happened with the Dalai Lama. We never thought that he would come here. And then we got word that he was coming. And bringing him here turned out to be rather complex because of his political situation. He is, in some ways, considered an exiled head of state, as well as, of course, a great spiritual leader. So what we had to do in bringing him here was provide a lot of security. And that is, we had to blockade Pleasant Street and we had state troopers patrolling the roof with guns. And we had, it's always great telling the story here, you know, because you really get a feeling of what it was like. Um, 
and it was very, very intense, you know, with, with all of this security. And we had video cameras going, and it was a whole huge, crazy, chaotic scene. Now, in that year, I'd also been in a car accident, and I'd broken a bone in my foot, and I was using crutches, which I was not very dexterous with, and I was feeling pretty morose. I was standing in the back of a crowd of about 100 people outside, feeling, oh, you know, I can't even get close, and I can't use the crutches, and, uh, you know, I feel so bad, and here he is, he's coming, you know, and I can't even do that. And <laughs> I was standing there in the back, feeling all that, and this whole crazy scene was going on with the state troopers and the whole thing, and his car pulled up, he got out of the car, and he did something that I've seen him do many, many times since which is that he seems to have a kind of radar for the person in the crowd who's suffering the most, and he goes right there. In this case, it was me. It was like he got out of the car, he made a beeline for me. He came over to me, he took my hand, looked at me, and he said, what happened? And it was perfect, you know, because there was nothing he could do to take away my physical pain. There was nothing he could do to make me any better using the crutches. But that terrible feeling of being so apart and so alone in that state, it just completely dissolved. That also is the, the union of equanimity and compassion. Sometimes we can't make the suffering go away. But we can be present. We can do that. Compassion is a very great strength. We open to the suffering, we relate to it without resentment and with clear determination to try to help, to do what we can do, as much as we can do. When we act in response to difficulty or suffering. It's either very limited in the sense of a habitual reaction or it's very vast in the sense of compassion. We do what we have to do, what we can do. Many Vipassana teachers have told a story which actually is a story about me. So in recent years, I've reclaimed it. The story happened when I was living in India, in Bodh Gaya, which is the um, town that has grown up around the tree under which the Buddha got enlightened. And at one point, a friend and I went from Bodh Gaya to Calcutta. We, there was something going on the day that we had to leave Calcutta, get on the train and go back to Bodh Gaya. It was a riot or something in the streets. And we couldn't get a taxi. So we got on a form of transportation that I don't know if I would have ordinarily taken, and that is a rickshaw. Rickshaws in many places in India are these carriages pulled by men riding bicycles, but in Calcutta, the men are actually running on foot. So we got into this rickshaw because it was the only form of transportation we could get. And the rickshaw going to the train station went through all of these back alleys and all of these different places. 
At one point, going through an alley, a very large, very drunken Indian man stopped the man pulling the rickshaw and grabbed me. He started to pull me out. I thought, well, this is it. I'm going to be raped. I'm going to be killed. I looked around, and I didn't see a single friendly face, and I was terrified. But the friend that I was with managed to push off the man and get the rickshaw man to start running again, which he did. We got to the train station, got on the train, got back to Bodh Gaya. I was still very upset, and I was relaying all of this to Manindra, who was one of my teachers. And he said to me, Oh, Sharon, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit that man over the head. <laughs> Which is also true. We can certainly act. People get afraid at this notion of compassion in that it will make us passive. We'll lose our sense of protest. We can certainly act, but we act in a way that is really big. It takes in all of the possibilities of our own loving heart. When we stop, when we stay still, when we look at the vast range of experience, of conditions that's coming together in any single moment, then we have the possibility of both compassion and equanimity, or compassion and wisdom. In any moment, any occurrence, there's a vast, vast, vast multiplicity of causes coming together. And if we stop for a moment, if we pay attention, we get a sense of that. And then our action, whatever it turns out to be, is infused with compassion and wisdom. I thought of this when I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. It was interesting because a number of the exhibits there were about the effect, the consequence of the immigration policies of the United States and England in the 30s and how because of the restricted immigration policies and the quotas, many, many Jewish people could not emigrate, and they were killed. And it was funny for me, walking through that museum, and of course I was born Jewish, but as an American, I didn't like to think that that occurrence had anything to do with me, anything to do with my country. I kind of preferred to see it as something over there that they did. But what happens when we stop? We step back, we really look truthfully at the whole vast web of causes, of conditions that bring forth things in this world. Then we can act with true understanding. It's easier to say it's all them, it's over there. It has nothing to do with me. But our actions are truer and more powerful when we can open. Someone is always bearing witness to how things are, just as the earth was bearing witness for the bodhisattva sitting under the tree. 
There is nothing that happens that is inconsequential, that just disappears. And there's nothing that happens for no reason. All events in this life come together out of this vast multiplicity of causes. And we stop, we pay attention. We look fearlessly, we look truthfully. And what we discover is compassion because we're not apart from anything that happens. It all comes together in every moment for all of us. And then the next Brahma-vihara is the state of sympathetic joy. Very often people say that this is the most difficult of all of them, that we learn to open to people's suffering, not to wish them harm, not to be cruel, but to actually feel happy when somebody else is happy. That's very hard. But it's a very beautiful quality. I don't know if you've ever really paid attention or noticed when something wonderful happened for you and how different people tend to relate to that fact very differently. How incredibly wonderful it is when people are happy for you. It just feels so supportive and so joyful. And then what it feels like when people are not so happy for you. <laughs> and how much more alone you feel in that. It's a very beautiful quality. It's also somewhat difficult. It's difficult for many reasons. It's difficult in part because we, we have the habit of comparing, of judging. Comparison is a quality that is endless. It's, a, it's an attribute or characteristic of mind that's unceasing once we get into the loop of comparing. It's not the kind of quality that in and of itself will come to a natural state of rest or peace or cessation. Because we are seeing other people as objects, there is no lack of objects in our world. They're objects of comparison. Which it, what's interesting in the Buddhist psychology is that the state of comparison is considered unwholesome or unskillful no matter what the conclusion is that we draw from the act of comparison. It's the very movement of the mind, that much separation, to be threatened by others' happiness or to be defining who we are and how happy we are by looking at others rather than our own experience. It's that very movement of mind which is the problem. It's so restless, it's so yearning, it's so gnawing. No matter what conclusion we draw, we might look at somebody and say, I'm really better than they are. Or we might look at them and say, I'm not really as good as they are. Or we might look at them and say, I'm kind of equal, actually, to how they are. And that doesn't matter. It's the very movement of mind which is the problem. And it's endless. You can imagine coming in here 
for a sitting and noticing the person behind you or next to you and thinking, well, they just moved. That's good. You know, I can sit longer than they can. I'm, I'm really glad that they moved. And then you think, but wait a minute. They were actually already in here when I came in from the walking. What if they sat that whole last sitting and sat completely unmoving through the walking and only now they've moved? You know, I'm not nearly as good as they are. And they can sit for two and three hours without moving. So you kind of figure out your status relative to that person and then you look to the other side of you and you think, hmm, did they just move? I wondered. Was that a movement? And having somehow established your status in reference to everybody in the room, you kind of wait to see if somebody new comes in. So what does that mean? You have to do it all over again. It's endless. And so we have to revision the nature of our relationship. It's a process of revisioning to see that someone else's happiness is not a threat to us. Happiness is not a limited commodity in this universe that we have to struggle over. It's again in that realm of timelessness. It's other than getting and acquiring and having. It's different than that. And someone else's happiness is not a threat to our own. In fact, it is our own. Wendell Berry recently said, he was talking about health, health in the sense of healing, wholeness. He said, the smallest unit of health is a community. The smallest unit of healing is a community. It's beyond just ourselves and our own experience. The Dalai Lama said it very well. He said, there's so many other people in this world that it makes sense to put their happiness on a par with our own. Because then our own chances for delight and happiness is enhanced 5.5 billion to one. <laughs> so imagine the possibilities when it's not just our own experience that's making us happy. We have to see through that tendency toward judgment, see through that tendency toward comparison, toward separation, and find the tremendous delight that is actually being able to rejoice. Rejoice fully in our own happiness and in the happiness of others. This is from the Buddha who said to one of the nuns at that time, meditate on the unconditioned. Get rid of the tendency to judge yourself above, below, or equal to others. By penetrating deeply into judgment, you will live at peace. We open to suffering with compassion, and we open to joy with sympathetic joy. And they balance each other out. Opening to suffering and having compassion keeps sympathetic joy from being mindless, from being giddy, from being disconnected to that whole other side of things. And having sympathetic joy or developing sympathetic joy 
keeps compassion from falling into grief, into bitterness, into brokenheartedness. Sometimes for sympathetic joy, we also have to change perspective, just like in equanimity, where we make our minds, our hearts very, very big and open. With sympathetic joy, we see not just that bird, but the sky with the bird flying through it. Sometimes we make our perspective more immediate, more direct, so that we can take delight, we can be happy seeing a little flower growing somewhere. Even though it is true we are in the midst or past the midst of a very grave ecological crisis, still we can see that flower and be happy. We can see a child smiling, we can be happy. All of these qualities will reinforce, support, strengthen each other, and reinforce, support, and strengthen our lives. They all point to the same thing, a vast spaciousness, a tremendous sense of connection, and knowing that we're not, a, we're not apart and we're not separate. Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste. Namaste.